Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. world we hear a great deal about democracy of course it's constantly trotted out by the leaders uh, of imperialist countries in a, a boastful and arrogant manner to you know claim that their system is the best system etc however the way that in which they deal with this is always extremely abstract um, nothing of any real content is ever said Workers' democracy, on the other hand, is, is uh, very much, in some respects, the direct opposite of uh, bourgeois democracy. Bourgeois democracy is formal and contrived, insofar as it even exists, because we also have to remind ourselves that although in countries like Britain and other Western countries, we, you know, the vote is extended throughout the population, and, of course, there's a host of other democratic rights these were actually won in struggle, usually against the ruling class. So <clears throat> even when this sort of this existing bourgeois democracy is sold to us, um, we should also remember that its best features, if you like, were won against the bourgeoisie itself. But anyway, bourgeois democracy, even uh, where you have its extension to the whole population, more or less, it's really just a formal thing, and it's a very abstract construction defined in advance um, based on uh, very fixed principles uh, and formal rules and precedents that must be obeyed regardless of whether they particularly help the situation. And they say nothing of the real lives that we actually lead, the real power that we actually have or don't have the real balances in, in the population. It doesn't really discuss or think about those. It doesn't build that into its system whatsoever. And for that reason, I describe it as a very abstract and sort of contrived and formal democratic system. And of course, the opinion is not restricted just to Marxists. It's a very widely held opinion that actually our democracy isn't a real democracy, that the, the corporations behind the scenes really control things the banks will uh, threaten governments if they don't do what they what the people want them to do. Uh, sorry, if they don't do what the banks want them to do. Um, and uh, and really, people are aware that this very corrupt the corruption of money and of power based on wealth uh, and inequalities of wealth filters through in a thousand invisible ways throughout society, which constantly hamper. The, what little democratic process we really have. So, for instance, um, you have in a, we've experienced in the last year or year and a half in Britain in the Labour Party a rare victory, of course, with Corbyn winning. Uh, but we should bear in mind, we should remember just how lucky that was, how the whole system was set up to prevent somebody like him even being able to run and was only on the ballot almost for a laugh because they didn't take him seriously at all. 
Uh, and now him having won, there's all kinds of discussions and have been over how to prevent this ever happening again. And all kinds of contrived bureaucratic rules they want to establish, such as the election of uh, shadow cabinet ministers, but not elected by the membership, elected, of course, by the MPs. All kinds of deliberate constructions to prevent... Uh, the members actually having elected who they want to have elected. And you can feel at every step of the way in the Labour Party these tentacles of big business and organisations like Progress, which are set up by big business, hampering the democratic process, restricting the rights of ordinary people to really have a control over their own party. Um, <clears throat> and I think many people in society, the majority of people in some form or another, are aware of this. But as, as I said, workers' democracy is extremely different to this. Workers' democracy is not contrived, it's not formal and abstract, it's not about setting up a scheme of rules in advance which have to be obeyed uh, and uh, fetishised even. Uh, workers' democracy actually is not a, uh, an imagined creation of Marxists and revolutionaries. It's not something that we would like to see so we imagine it might exist. Actually, it is, in many cases, a, a real spontaneous creation of the working class. In many instances, in revolutionary processes in the history of the world, or the history of capitalism. And, uh, in fact, even, you know, workers' democracy could extend or uh, restrict the definition of it, of course, to include even just simple trade union meetings within capitalism. And so, obviously, exists, if, it, if it's understood that extensively on an, an extremely wide level, in society. And because of this, because of this practical and spontaneous uh, character of workers' democracy, it, has, uh, it is much more flexible and is, uh, is much more, I think, varied in its form, actually. It has to be understood that it is created differently in different circumstances and, uh, and, and its rules should be understood and interpreted flexibly by, and will inevitably be interpreted flexibly by its participants. So it does vary from time to time and place to place. However, I do think there are certain common features and principles and problems, if you like, of workers' democracy that we can identify and I think we should discuss. So first of all, it's of course a very direct form of democracy, a very hands-on form of democracy. Uh, it's not, um, whereas bourgeois democracy is sort of elevated out of the economic system and the real lives of ordinary people, of course, it's this very passive process where you put an X in a box every few years, that sort of thing, uh, very removed from the day-to-day -day life that we lead. Uh, workers' democracy grows organically, I think, out of uh, real life, out of, particularly out of economic production, out of workplaces in particular, although not exclusively. But that is, of course, the kind of uh, key, the sort of home, if you like, of workers' democracy is within the economy. And some people even have called it, at, at times, called it economic democracy. Although I, I think that's not the best term because it's, it is also political democracy as well. It's not just restricted to the economy. Uh, nevertheless, that does shed a little light onto something about workers' democracy. Um, so it's a practical and a flexible system that grows out of the often out of defensive struggles in the workplace, initially at least, um, out of the real lives and the real needs of workers. Therefore, it has to be a very, uh, a, a sort of a very rapid and dynamic system that can change according to circumstances and according to what the workers need to achieve. Um, and uh, there are certain 
things that flow from this, this direct character that it has. One of the general rules, of course, is that you have to be there. Uh, it stresses real participation, uh, mass meetings, workers coming together and discussing their shared problems, uh, debating, and, uh, you know, in, in, in one room or, you know, one kind of uh, venue and, and, uh, and taking decisions there and then. Those are generally features that you can identify in strikes and in revolutionary processes. It's not really the case anymore in Britain because of the, um, the reactionary anti-trade union laws that were put in place by Thatcher. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it's occasionally you'll see it on wildcat strikes. But uh, one of the forms that workers' democracy would often take in Britain, and I'm sure it's the case in other countries, would be that after a mass meeting, say, discussing whether or not to have a strike, the workers would have a show of hands to see whether or not they, after they've debated it sufficiently amongst themselves, to see whether, you know, there's a majority in favour of going on strike or not. Um, and that's interesting because what the British government in the minor strike said was that that was actually not really democratic, uh, basically for two reasons. One, it's only those who happen to be there, obviously, not those who aren't there on the day, obviously, in that sense, don't get a vote. And secondly, um, that it's less democratic because there's maybe an intimidating atmosphere. There's the pressure of the being around other people and having to show, you know, with your hand whether or not you support or don't support going on strike. And so they insisted now that trade unions have to ballot in this very, again, this contrived and formal manner where, you know, all the boxes have to be ticked in a very tedious way. Now, you can see why it would seem convincing, perhaps, to some people that that is more democratic. Because, yes, it doesn't give everybody a vote, technically. Um, but actually, I think we have to respect the workers themselves and their own decisions over how to express themselves politically and democratically. And there is a reason why they tend to choose that method, i.e. the mass meetings and the show of hands. Because it's a far more immediate and powerful means of organising themselves. And obviously, strike action is something that does require quite quick decisions to be made. And also, it requires mass meetings in which the ideas can be discussed rather than something passive where you just sit at home and you get something in the post saying, oh, do you want to have a strike or not? And, uh, that's, uh, and that is how workers, after all, have chosen to organise themselves. It wasn't imposed onto them in some undemocratic manner. So that is, in reality, in practice, I think, more democratic because it brings people together and gives them more real control over their strike. And, of course, you've seen in strikes in Britain when they have to go through this tedious balloting process where the strikes are ruled out because although a majority wanted to have a strike, a few of the ballots were sent to the wrong address or something and it didn't tick, therefore, one of the boxes of making sure that everybody had a vote. And you can see in that way the sort of the emptiness of that formal procedure, the way in which it actually robs the vast majority of people who have decided to strike of real control over their strike. Um, uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's one of the features. Another feature uh, that you can notice in general, I think, is the importance of leadership. And not just leaders as in, you know, the national leader of a trade union or of a, or, or of a workers' party, but leadership at every level in the working class. Local cadres, if you like, shop stewards, things like that. Um, the workers, as I said, this importance of meeting, of actually having meetings and discussions. Because I think the working class, 
educates itself collectively through, you know, because they work collectively, through discussing. It's not that each worker necessarily has the most perfect socialist consciousness, obviously not. It's the, it's the discussion, it's the shared experience that is important. And for that reason, leadership is important as well. The workers, perhaps, who are more determined than others or who've proven themselves in struggle and have won the respect of the rest of their workers. And, of course, it's not a question of uh, privilege and hierarchy. A shop steward, for instance, is not exactly some privileged uh, bureaucrat, although, of course, in certain circumstances, they can be corrupted. But that is, uh, that is actually quite essential to, I think, the power of the working class. And, again, it's one of the things that the bourgeois states seeks to destroy those networks of activists and shop stewards. They want to dissolve that into, into the mass and, have, and, and, and give uh, no excuse for them having meetings where they can discuss with their fellow workers. And again, that's why they, they prefer more that, like the balloting system through the post. Um, <clears throat> one of the abstractions of bourgeois democracy, of course, is that it treats everybody as equal in the sense that they are identical. They don't have different interests necessarily. Uh, they don't exploit each other. They're not richer or poorer. Everyone has one vote regardless of anything, regardless of whether they're a billionaire or a worker. Now, of course, that's an enormous step forward as regards bourgeois democracy in the past when the vote was not even extended to the working class and to women. Obviously, that is a step forward. But it nevertheless is, is an abstraction. And if you, any of you were in Ben Galetsky's session two days ago on, um, oh no, was it just yesterday, actually? On, uh, I lose track of the days, on, um, uh, on what will socialism look like? And he talked about how bourgeois uh, justice is supposed to be blind, you know, and the, the statue of it has a blindfold on it. It's not supposed to take regard of your, your privileges or whatnot. <laughs> But it, actually what that does is it ignores the real power imbalances that exist in society. And it pretends that you can have what we would call a supra-class democracy, a democracy that spans all the classes, despite the fact that they're at war with each other, they have conflicting interests, and some of them are own the me all of the media, uh, etc., and others are extremely downtrodden. That is uh, one of the thing aspects of bourgeois democracy. And I think that it has that all the better to mask what is really going on. Uh, it doesn't really extend into the workplace at all or into the real conditions of people's lives. It's a kind of almost a, just this facade that takes place, but really behind the scenes, of course, is where the real power is exercised. Um, but in contrast to that, workers' democracy uh, not only takes recognition of the class differences that exist in society, but of course, typically would restrict itself to those who work. Um, and of course, again, that's a way in which the bourgeoisie could attack workers' democracy in a formal sense for being less democratic, uh, because, of course, you're not extending the franchise to the rich. But actually, that's, again, it's this, this abstract and formal way of looking at things that pretends that we're just so many individuals to be added up in this just a, a mere quantitative manner. Um, without conflicting interests. And put it this way, if you were in a, a workplace and you were wanted to organise a strike to defend yourselves and you wanted to discuss that amongst the workplace, would it be more democratic to invite the boss and all their managers into the meeting and involve them in your discussions and your plans and perhaps give them a vote as well as to whether or not you're going to go on strike against what they're doing? 
would that empower you more? Would that give the workforce a, a more confidence in their strike and uh, more of an ability to take such strike action? Of course it wouldn't. So again, this linking of workers' democracy to real practical needs. In other words, it's not just mere democracy for the sake of it, but it's to achieve something. In the case of a strike, obviously, it's maybe to achieve a strike or some other kind of industrial action. In the case of running society after taking power, <coughs> we are here talking about workers' democracy before socialism and communism have really been achieved. In other words, when there are still class distinctions immediately after taking power. Then the practical need of that workers' democracy is obviously to organise socialism and to uh, win against the bourgeoisie and to defeat the counter-revolution. And in such circumstances, it would be absurd, I think, to invite those very same people against whom the revolution is struggling. And you can imagine the heightened tensions of a revolution when you've taken power from the capitalists, when everyone is forced to choose sides, the absurdity of um, having uh, inviting the capitalists into the Soviets or the workers' councils to help you decide on how to carry out the revolution would be ludicrous. Um, and so I think for that reason, workers' democracy is also much more honest than bourgeois democracy. Uh, we call it also the dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, that is what, another name for workers' democracy. Workers dictating to society, if you like. Uh, and cap bourgeois democracy can also be termed the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie or of capital. But of course, they would never admit that that is the case. They pretend that actually it's all because everyone's got to vote. Uh, it's a genuine democracy. It's one giant discussion where we're all just deciding collectively how to run society. But of course... Most of us are deprived access to resources uh, and, and, uh, and to, to, to the means to live and to communicate. So anyway, on to the uh, concrete example of workers' democracy in the Soviet Union after the taking of power. Uh, because that is the only example, uh, really, or the, certainly the, the, the biggest example, of what a real workers' power. You have, of course, the Paris Commune, which came before it, which was a big source source of inspiration for the leaders of the revolution and you've had other instances uh, brief instances subsequently but that is of course the real capturing of state power by the working class that is the only clear example of it so it's very useful to examine it however we have to bear in mind just how different Russia in 1917 was to today uh, in, in the western world and we, we therefore have to be careful in comparing uh, in contrasting what was done with what we would want to do today. Nevertheless, this is the greatest example, I think, of workers' democracy that ever lived. So, on the 3rd of January 1918, so uh, just under two months after the taking of power uh, in Russia, um, they issued, or, or the new government, the revolutionary government, issued the Declaration of the Rights of the Toilers and, also, and the Soviet Constitution, um, which uh, declared that the Soviets were the sovereign body of the country. The Soviets were, again, spontaneous creations of the working class. They, weren't, they actually first were created in 1905, not in the 1917, they were recreated in 1917. They weren't things that uh, the Marxists decided should happen and somehow managed to make happen. In fact, many of the Marxists were surprised by them. They weren't quite sure what to make of them initially. Although Lenin uh, recognised their significance, uh, but never, yes, the uh, the workers, the Soviets were what they were. It was basically a the word Soviet means council, and uh, it was 
uh, a workplace democracy um, where delegates from factories and other workplaces would be elected and you also had factory committees which was a, a more usually a smaller scale form of direct democracy anyway you would elect a delegate from your workplace or your local working class community uh, to attend the local Soviets and there you would have like a giant debate basically between members of the working class and also um, local like uh, other people as well uh, maybe some some middle class people uh, Trotsky emphasizes that one of the great things about the Soviets is that whilst being undeniably led by the working class they did also involve other oppressed layers uh, of the population uh, within them and thereby the working class is able to lead other sections of the population non-capitalist sections of the population anyway that's really a separate point but these were declared these organizations which were real which had been created in real struggle by the working class and were universally recognized by workers all over the country and understood by them as their organs of power. These were given formal declaration of their power in these documents uh, at the beginning of 1918. Um, but before I come on to describe some of the principles of this, um, whilst I have been making a sharp distinction between bourgeois and workers' democracy, we shouldn't think that we just oppose all of the freedoms of bourgeois democracy. And it's interesting to note, actually, that whilst taking power and making the Soviets uh, the organs of, of, um, of, of sovereign power in Russia, and a whole host of other what we normally think of as bourgeois democratic freedoms uh, were granted um, uh, in the revolution, in the taking of power in 1917, there was a huge extension of rights, the freedom of religion and the freedom to practice it without persecution or interference from the state. Uh, freedom of sexuality was declared, which was far in advance of so-called liberal Britain and other countries like that. Freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. But what's interesting in particular to note about these is, and I'll come on to this in a, in a second, is that these were filled with material contents. Workers were not just given the freedom to assemble, but were positively encouraged to assemble by the revolutionary government um, and were given means to do so. But anyway, just to dwell on this point a little further, uh, it is a common feature of bourgeois democracy and bourgeois revolutions that it cannot even fully realise its so-called freedom of the individual and the rights of that uh, and, and the democratic rights of, uh, of, of bourgeois democracy. It frequently cannot even fully achieve those things, even in the most favourable of circumstances, because of the conservatism of the capitalist class, because of the fear of revolution that they have. So, of course, in Britain, in the so-called mother of parliaments, uh, we have another parliament beside our mother of parliaments, uh, which is not elected. <coughs> this is the House of Lords. It is not elected. Up until recently, it was almost exclusively composed of aristocrats, people who just had their positions by birth. Um, and now many of the positions are simply appointed by the government. And there are also a number of religious leaders of the Church of England who just automatically get a position in there as well. Uh, we also, of course, have our head of state as the Queen. Uh, and this is not just unique to Britain. You have such a situation, of course, in many advanced bourgeois democratic countries uh, and to whom the, 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 the military swear their allegiance. So we should bear that in mind as well, that the revolution in 1918 actually achieves many of these bourgeois democratic freedoms far more thoroughly than did uh, countries like Britain, uh, etc. Um, 
Anyway, in making the Soviets the so sovereign body of the nation, um, the Constitution therefore made the franchise exclusive to those who work. Uh, the Soviets were built by those who work. So it was actually in the rules that uh, if you employed other people, if you lived off the labour of other people, if you exploited other people, essentially, you actually couldn't participate uh, in these organisations. I've already explained, I think, that, um, the justification for that, the necessity of it, indeed. Um, and, uh, um, and, but most significantly, as I suggested earlier, the, uh, they didn't just grant these freedoms in the legalistic sense, they, or at least they attempted to. Of course, the conditions were extremely bad. But they attempted to fill them with a the material content uh, by granting access to the newspapers, to the meeting halls, the airwaves, etc., through nationalisation and placing these institutions uh, under the control of the workers' organisations. Um, so they filled these legalistic provisions with a real material content. So the workers not, not only merely formally could uh, exercise the right of assembly, but could actually in practice do it. And as Lenin himself explained, uh, this is a quote, the old bourgeois apparatus, the bureaucracy, the privileges of wealth, of bourgeois education, of social connections, etc. All this disappears under the Soviet form of organisation. Freedom of the press ceases to be hypocrisy because the printing plants and stocks of paper are taken away from the bourgeoisie. The same thing applies to the best buildings, the best palaces, the mansions and the manor houses. Soviet power took thousands upon thousands of these best buildings from the exploiters at one stroke, and in this way made the right of assembly, without which democracy is a fraud, a million times more democratic for the people. Um, he goes on. Is there a single country in the world, even among the most bourgeois, the most democratic bourgeois countries, in which the average rank and file worker, the average rank and file labourer, uh, um, enjoys anything approaching such liberty of holding meetings in the best buildings, such liberty of using the largest printing presses and biggest stocks of paper to express their ideas and, de and to defend their interests? So, um, such liberty of promoting men and women of their own class to administer and to knock into shape the state, as in Soviet Russia. In Russia, the bureaucratic machine has been completely smashed, raised to the ground, the old judges have been sent packing, the bourgeois parliament has been dispersed, and far more accessible representation has been given to the workers and peasants. Their Soviets have replaced the bureaucrats, or their Soviets have been put in control of the bureaucrats, and their Soviets have been authorised to elect the judges. Now, in this Soviet system of democracy, uh, initially, of course, um, <coughs> it was not an exclusively Bolshevik affair. The government that was formed out of the Soviets was itself a coalition between the Bolsheviks and the left social revolutionaries. And the, uh, the SRs as a whole and the Mensheviks uh, participated in the elections to the Soviets uh, actually for years after the taking of power until the 90, early 1920s. And even the cadets had the right to publish their newspaper. They were the equivalent of the Tories, basically. Had the right to publish their newspapers and be active uh, in society. It is true, however, as I think we all know, that these rights uh, and this sort of multi-party democracy was generally restricted uh, after the taking of power uh, in, a number, in a sort of step-by-step -step process because of the realities of the struggle of the revolution and of the civil war, which I think underlines that there can be no supra-class democracy. 
in a revolution, which is really a fight to the death, uh, there's no you can't there's no third way. You can't you can't sort of just have a gentlemanly debate in that sense. Of course, these groups, especially the the left SRs, but also the Mensheviks, in normal circumstances, uh, would be people that you know would normally engage in a a gentlemanly, I suppose, debate with the Bolsheviks and very similar people, and people would have passed back and forth between those parties. But in a civil war, uh, organised and financed by the counter-revolutionaries, by the bourgeoisie uh, and by the imperialists, you were forced to choose sides in a very vicious struggle. And that's precisely, of course, what the SRs, what the Mensheviks, and unsurprisingly, obviously, what the cadets did. So even the Mensheviks and the SRs openly conspired with the imperialists in the civil war, openly took arms from them, openly launched uprisings uh, throughout the country in collaboration with the whites, with the most reactionary forces in society. The SRs even uh, assassinated uh, Mirbach, the German um, uh, uh, ambassador, in an attempt to reopen the, uh, the war with Germany, and later on attempted to assassinate Lenin himself. So that's the, obviously the reality of those circumstances make impossible a kind of uh, what we understand as a sort of gentlemanly debate between people that just so happen to have different opinions about how society should be run. Um, but that's not a point of principle uh, that we would that is is something we <laughs> that workers' democracy insists upon. It's a product of the struggle in those circumstances. Uh, but, the, but nevertheless, notwithstanding that, the Soviets remained an incredibly powerful democratic form of representation where workers still continue to elect their delegates and to debate in their workplaces uh, what course the country should take, how the revolution should be organised, etc., and elected delegates to uh, represent them in the Soviet system. Uh, and that sense remains still a far more real and practical form of democracy than anything we know today. Um, the workers' government itself, uh, in other words, the commissars, you know, the ministers of the government, basically, was elected um, from the, uh, the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, uh, which in the year after taking power, in the 12 months after taking power in, in October 1917, I believe met four times for something like a week at a time, uh, and uh, was... Um, in which you know de real delegates from the workplaces, uh, real working class fighters, would debate over the, the, you know the whole situation in the country and would elect the government uh, on that basis. It was the equivalent, I suppose, of the parliament in a in a in a, a bourgeois democracy. Um, and of course, they they had um, various um, principles. Uh, of this election, which you're probably familiar with, taken actually from the Paris Commune largely, which Lenin explains in State and Revolution. Um, general principle, these are the most sort of fundamental principles of workers' democracy, which they attempted to put into place after taking power. Um, and they were as follows. One, free and democratic elections and the right of recall of all officials. Two, no official to receive a wage higher than that of a skilled worker. Three, no standing army but the armed people. And four, gradually all the tasks of running the state to be carried out in turn by the workers. When everybody is a bureaucrat, nobody is a bureaucrat. These are the general principles of workers' power that are in place in order to prevent bureaucracy and to prevent privilege 
uh, and to really ensure that the workers have control over their own states. Lenin explains further, he says, this is a new type of state, without bureaucracy, without a police, without a permanent army, which replaces bourgeois democracy by a new democracy and confers on the labouring masses legislative, executive and military power, thereby creating the means by which the masses will be educated. Now, that's also an interesting point he makes about the unity of legislative and executive power, something also Marx emphasised, particularly after studying the Paris Commune. Now, if you study bourgeois democracy, they, one of the most cherished principles of it is the separation of powers, uh, which you are told is to make sure that no horrible tyrant ever comes to power and bosses everyone around too much because you've got separate powers there, like the judiciary and the legislative, which are independent of the executive, to prevent too strong a concentration of power, essentially. What it really is there for is to, is there, is to, is to, is to stop, basically... Uh, any real infringement upon the status quo. It's to stop capital and the movement of capital really to be prevented too much by any powerful politician. I think you can see this most clearly in the United States, the most ideal bourgeois democracy, arguably, uh, in which they have this very tedious and complicated balance of all the houses and all of these committees and blah, 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 which are there to ensure that you basically have... Um, a bottleneck in an, in an inability for a president or anyone else to really push through progressive legislation or any other kind of legislation which might impinge upon the making of money, basically. Um, which is how really the liberals see it. The liberals see the making of money, the buying and selling of commodities as the most perfect expression of freedom. And therefore, that must be protected at all costs. And the state, for them, is nothing but a necessary evil that really must be restricted. But from our point of view, and this is a fundamentally different kind of state, it's a state really in the hands of the working class, created by their own organisations, meeting on a regular basis. There's no reason to divide the powers, and indeed we want them to be united, to make the power of the working class the most immediate, the most practical, the most flexible that it could possibly be, especially in a revolutionary process where you need, obviously, to organise the defence of the revolution. Lenin also outlined around the same time um, some more principles similar to the ones I've just explained in theses on workers' democracy, which he issued uh, to the new workers' government. And there's ten principles I'll just read out. Unity of all the poor and exploited masses. Two, unity of the conscious active minority for the education of the whole labouring population. Three, abolition of parliamentarianism, which separates legislative from executive authority. Four, a unity between the masses and the states which will be closer than in the older democratic forms. Six, oh sorry, five, arming of the workers and peasants. Six, more democracy and less formalism. Greater facilities for election and recall of delegates. Seven, close links between the political authority and production. Eight, the possibility of eliminating bureaucracy. Nine, the transition from the formal democracy of the rich and the poor to the real democracy of the toilers. And ten, participation of all members of Soviets in the management and administration of the state. Now, so far, so good. But there are also differences within the workers' movement or in those who believe, rather, in workers' power, and workers' democracy. There are differences over how that should express itself. And principally, what I'm talking about is largely the difference between 
Marxists or Leninists, and anarchists and syndicalists. Um, now, much is made of, of democratic centralism, the democratic centralism of Lenin. Much is made to suggest that this is um, a sort of contrivance of Lenin uh, that is uniquely authoritarian and sort of maddeningly centralizing, uh, even against what Marx would have wanted. And, uh, and this is something alien to, the, to, to real workers' organisations and is, is, is a form of, uh, inevitably a form of dictatorship over them. That is obviously something liberals say, but it's also something that anarchists uh, would say as well. Um, and anarchists, instead of this, would stress the need for workers' organisations and workers' democracy to have autonomy or a federation kind of structure where you know, the local workplaces and the different industries have autonomy. There's no central authority that dictates to them because for them that was just a new form of hierarchy and oppression. First of all, it's important to stress that I don't think Lenin's ideas of democratic centralism are contrived and sucked out of his thumb. I think that they are the real principles of workers' democracy as they, as they actually express themselves. Workers feel the need, of course, to join into bigger organisations and to collaborate and to... to submit to general decisions, basically. And also, you can see in, in for instance, a strike where the workers debate freely uh, and discuss amongst themselves whether or not they should have a strike. Um, but one, once the decision is taken, then that decision has to be, if it, if it is a decision to strike, taken by a majority vote, that decision has to be imposed. Uh, you can't just have those workers in the minority who disagreed with having the strike then just opting out of it and effectively scabbing on the workforce. To do so makes a strike impossible. It makes it impractical. Therefore, to make sure that the strike actually can, ex can exist and to make sure that the workers, the majority of the workers can have their wishes carried out, that decision has to be imposed. And sometimes it can be imposed quite violently on the picket line, if need be. Um, and, of course, you also elect in such a strike certain leaders... Uh, charged with organising the picket lines and other kinds of activity that need to take place in the strike. So you can see quite clearly in this most elementary and fundamental form of workers' democracy and power, you can see the same basic principles of democratic centralism that Leninists believe in. But it's, it's a flexible idea, it's a flexible thing. It will vary in its application from place to place. And I think that's part of the problems that's not understood about this, that workers' control and democracy as existed in the Soviet Union, as practiced under Lenin and Trotsky, is taken out of its context and presented as if those are general principles which we must all apply uh, anywhere and everywhere. Um, there are a great deal of, I think, frankly, naive ideas about how it is possible to organise uh, a revolution and establish a socialist society with regards to <coughs> the, the uh, influence of anarchism and syndicalism on the left. So, as I've said, they stress autonomy, the need for freedom of local workers' organisations. Uh, and I think that in itself expresses, frankly, a kind of bourgeois or petty bourgeois prejudice, a sort of liberal prejudice that we want to have our own freedom. Isn't it so terrible if someone else tells us what to do? It's that sort of individualistic kind of conception of things that doesn't actually flow from the working class uh, itself. Um, and, uh, and let's take a look at the, what really happened in Russia, I think, to come to a better understanding of the problems and the realities of the situation. 
Now, workers' control, the actual phrase workers' control, uh, technically is used or has been, was used in the Russian Revolution. Uh, not to mean uh, workers' power and workers' management of the economy and of society. It was used to refer to the control of a local factory or workplace where you would elect your managers um, and decide on the hiring and firing and things like that. And it's just restricted to that. So that technically is what workers' control means. And of course, its application can be very varied in different circumstances and depends entirely on the, the technical uh, and scientific and educational apparatus available to the working class. Now, when the, Russia, when the Bolsheviks took power in 1917, the idea was, the understanding was, that um, there wasn't the technical means to implement real workers' management of the economy. The working class was too small, uh, was not educated sufficiently, a lot of it was illiterate, and basically had no skill in managing things. Now, in today's capitalist societies, many of the managers or the administrators of the economy of workplaces are actually really themselves wage labourers who are probably members of the same union. But in uh, Russia that day, those, those were a very, a very privileged layer, if you could even call them of the working class, an extremely privileged layer, a petty bourgeois layer, essentially. Um, and, and the working class was really denied that kind of knowledge and that kind of ability. So the idea after taking the power is that workers' control was to be granted so that workers in the workplaces could... Uh, were granted the right by the power, by the state, to decide over how their factories should be run, essentially. But the idea was that these workplaces would remain under the management and the expertise of the capitalists or of their managers. They weren't to nationalise the whole of the industry, and they weren't to put the management and the decision-making over what was to be produced and, and how and all of the technicalities of it. That was to remain in the hands of the bourgeois management class, essentially. That was the thinking anyway. Of course, the reality of it, of the situation in such a fierce class struggle, was that in practice, of course, especially with the onset of the civil war and of war communism, was that it wasn't actually possible to do so because these managers basically obviously sabotaged things, were totally opposed to the revolution. The idea was that they would be under the watchful eye of the workers who'd been granted the right uh, to, see, to, to look at the books of the companies to see what was coming and what was going. But in practice, it was just not possible. And so the nationalisations went far further. Uh, but the realities of workers' control in the months after taking power in uh, early 1918, where the workers were, as I said, granted the right of workers' control, and Lenin uh, issued a demand for the workers to take control of their own workplaces, actually. But the reality of that was far from the rosy picture that perhaps the anarchists would paint. The anarchists have this idea that merely having workers' control in the local areas, they'll just, of course, the anarchists would accept the need for cooperation amongst the working class in the economy as a whole. But they have the idea that arises almost automatically out of the sort of collective understanding of the working class. They don't need an authority to tell them to do it. They just will sort of automatically cooperate and, and, and create a harmonious economy. Well, the realities uh, in, in the conditions of the Soviet Union uh, in 1918 uh, were incredibly of, of, of workers' control, were those of chaos, of uh, economic disintegration, confusion etc. 
One uh, labor leader, trade union leader at the time, said, and this is a quote, workers' control has turned into an anarchistic attempt to achieve socialism in one enterprise, but it actually leads to clashes among the workers themselves and to the refusal of fuel, metal, etc., to one another. And there were many instances of workers in some factories asset stripping their factories, uh, basically just selling off the machinery uh, in order to get a bite to eat. Uh, other places where uh, factories in a more, let's say, advantageous, advantageous position, perhaps what they were making was uh, rare and very highly sought after, <coughs> took advantage of that and essentially fleeced the rest of the economy. There are other instances of workers and also of soldiers under in the Soviets awarding themselves insanely high pay rises that were just not feasible and other things. Now, this is not to denigrate the ability of the working class to run its own workplaces. But in dire economic circumstances, at the end of, of, a, of a horrific uh, world war in which people were starving to death and were exhausted, and when the means of education were not really there either, in those circumstances, in the chaos of the revolution, unsurprisingly, uh, the workers, or some of the workers, behaved in such a manner. Um, and there were political problems as well. You'll never have a socialist revolution in which every single share, every single area of the working class is behind the revolution, is fully on board and understands what needs to happen. The working class is not homogenous. There are more privileged and conservative sections of the working class. In Chile, the, tr the, uh, the truck drivers in the Chilean revolution, uh, I don't know the details of it, but essentially went on strike against the Allende government, largely backed and organised, I think, by the CIA. Uh, but in, in Russia... Uh, it, it, the uh, Vichil, I think is, I'm not sure if I pronounced it exactly correctly, was essentially the train drivers union. And this was a conservative section of the working class that didn't want the revolution. And it threatened the rest of the working class with a boycott, with a strike, basically, where they wouldn't move anything around the country because of the revolution. Now, in those circumstances, you're attempting to set up a workers' government in the interests of the whole working class. What, we, what the anarchists might see as just autonomy, as just different layers of the working class doing what they wish, actually not only creates chaos, but it's not even autonomy, because it means that those different areas of the working class, the more privileged, perhaps, sections of the working class, are essentially dictating to the rest of the working class what should happen. So there's no autonomy there at all. It remains centralism, in a sense, but it's the centralism of those who happen to work in that industry. So it became necessary to introduce uh, a control from above, workers' management through the state from above, which the anarchists will complain about and talk about how anti-democratic it was. But in the conditions, it was absolutely essential. And, and in fact, it would be essential even in more favourable conditions, in the sense that uh, we need to plan and to coordinate the economy, which is what socialism is all about. As Trotsky himself says, and this is a quote, no, what, no he said, no, Workers won't have complete control over their workplace. They will be subject to policies laid down by the local council of workmen's deputies, and their range of discretion will be limited in turn by regulations made for each class of industry by the boards or bureau of the central government. Kropotkin's communalism, Kropotkin was an anarchist, would work in a simple society based on agriculture and household industries, but is not at all suited to the state of things in modern industrial society. The coal from the Donetsk Basin goes all over Russia and is indispensable to, in all sorts of industries. 
Now, don't you see that if the organised people of that district could do as they pleased with the coal mines, they could hold up all the rest of Russia if they so chose? Entire independence of each locality respecting its industries would result in endless friction and difficulties in a society that has reached the stage of local specialisation of industry. It might even bring on a civil war. So workers' control, in our conception of it, is merely one side of the equation. It's the right of workers in a workplace to elect their own managers, to decide on the details of how the plan should be implemented. But beyond that, you need also overall control of the economy, which should come through a workers' government elected through workers' organisations. And actually, the reality is, is that if you don't have that, if you have this autonomy of workers' control, which the anarchists would argue for, actually, you have essentially just capitalism run by cooperatives. And of course, you do have cooperatives under capitalism, some run by anarchists, others, you know, more sort of respectable kinds like John Lewis and such. Uh, and they're nothing fundamentally different from other capitalist companies. Uh, they have to survive in the markets and they can't do away with the markets because there's no overall control of the economy. The market is precisely that anarchy of production where each enterprise tries to uh, profit at the expense of others. It tries to maximise its profits in this, in this unpredictable and unknown market. Uh, and if you have kind of a, some sort of situation where all of the workers run their own workplaces, but there's no, no overall plan, there's no overall harmonisation of the economy, there's no means to ensure that that takes place, then, of course, what you will have, have is precisely what Trotsky described, is, is anarchy in production, is booms and busts, just as you have under capitalism, and therefore incentives to, to hire new workers in the more successful cooperatives, Perhaps you, the new workers you hire will be on less uh, strong contracts than the, the ones in the original cooperative. And then you'll have to fire them when you have an economic crisis. The, the ca capitalists themselves are not fundamentally evil. They behave in the way that they do because they have to obey the market. They exist in a market and they have to survive in an unpredictable marketplace. And therefore, they have to make a profit in accordance to the laws of the market. Workers co control, workers' cooperatives within a market without overall control and harmonisation of the economy fundamentally would be no different. Um, <clears throat> and there, are many, there is one particularly good example of this. Um, there are many small examples of it, of course. In the, in the UK in the 1970s, the, the, the trade unions were very powerful. And they, they, you did have almost a situation of dual power in the factories where the capitalists would kind of have to do what the workers wanted them to do, in a sense. But you didn't have socialism. You didn't have overall control over the economy. But the best example has to be Yugoslavia uh, uh, under Tito, where he introduced a kind of form of workers' democracy, which in reality was kind of fictitious anyway, but a sort of semi-real form of workers' democracy at a local level, but in which essentially the different enterprises of the economy competed with each other and even on the world market. And of course what happened is all the typical problems of a capitalist economy. So um, uh, Slovenia ended up, which is one of the component parts of Yugoslavia, Slovenia ended up being six times richer than Kosovo because I guess it was already more, slightly more developed, perhaps it was in a more advantageous position for trade, perhaps it had a more educated workforce, I don't know the details of it. But those kind of discrepancies are inevitable with the blindness of the market. 
The only way that you can do away with them and create genuine equality and genuine freedom is when the whole of society takes over and understands all of the resources at its disposal and collectively plans them and harmonizes them, not for the short-term gain of this or that enterprise that happens to be in a fortuitous position, but plans them for the profit of all of society, for the most harmonious profit of all of society. And to do that, you have to have centralization. You have to have an overall control of the economy. The way that we would propose that, or one of the ideas that has been mooted in the past, is perhaps the idea of having, under a workers' government, um, uh, uh, sort of commit committees in charge of planning the economy composed of one-third representatives of the central government, which is itself, of course, elected through workers' democracy, one-third representatives of the trade unions, and maybe one-third representatives of the workers in the local industry. And maybe even you could find some form of representation for the consumers as well within that system of planning. There's no hard and fast rule, and obviously we haven't established socialism, so there's obviously a lot of unknown quantities. But that kind of idea, some sort of a central planning organisation with representation from the different layers of the working class and the different sides of the working class, the consumption side and the productive side, and, and, and making sure that some sort of representative of the overall interests of the process uh, is there at all, uh, is there through the central government. Um, <clears throat> in, in, in the Soviet Union, they attempted to do something like that very uh, quickly after taking power. There was a, an, an organization called Vesenka, which um, was uh, a kind of like an economic Soviet. Uh, in other words, you had the, the, the political Soviets, the Supreme, the Supreme Soviet, the Congress of the All Russian Congress of Soviets that I've described, but also to be elected was an economic Soviet just dealing with economic questions. And uh, the top body of this was to be composed by, um, I, don't know. I don't know where I've got it, oh yeah, 10 members from the political Soviet, that is, the, you know, the, the, the main central Soviet, 20 from regional industry and 30 from the trade unions. However, the reality of it was that it fell into disuse because of the conditions of the civil war and uh, the chaos and confusion of the revolution. Of course, it was incredibly difficult to manage uh, workers' democracy in those conditions. Also, the, the, the all-Russian Congress of Soviets, which I said met four times in the first year of the revolution and whose job was to hold the government to account, etc., that also began to meet less and less regularly after 1918. And you can imagine why, in the conditions of the civil war, the blockade, etc., the economic conditions, the military conditions, the best working-class fighters were literally dying in the civil war. They lacked the energy from below. They lacked the time, etc., for this kind of participation <coughs> to be real. And that, of course, has, I have to be very telegraphic here, but that, of course, is the ultimate reason why workers' democracy gradually got extinguished in the Soviet Union and replaced with Stalinism. It was the dire conditions. It was the lack of education of the working class, uh, the lack of time, the exhaustion, uh, etc., and gradually, bit by bit, basically the workers were usurped by the, the, the bureaucrats, the middle classes, particularly the, the former czarist bureaucrats, uh, <clears throat> who found more and more room to uh, take privileges for themselves and push the working class to the side. And that's the basis of Stalinism. But anyway, the last thing I just want to say is just uh, regarding Lenin. 
Lenin always wanted more workers' initiative, always wanted more workers' control. Even despite you know, the, the, the difficulties in Russia, the realities of the situation. Uh, in fact, one of the last things that he ever did was he issued a decree uh, attempting to encourage workers uh, to take more control of their industries and also to, to encourage more women's involvement in industry. Of course, he then uh, died uh, in uh, early 1924, but was really incapacitated for some time before that. But just to finish on a quote from him, 10 days after the taking of power in late 1917, he said, Comrades, working people, remember that now you yourselves are at the helm of the state. No one will help you if you yourselves do not unite and take into your hands all the affairs of the state. Your Soviets are from now on on the organs are from now on the organs of state authority, legislative bodies with full powers. Rally around your Soviets, strengthen them, get on with the jobs yourselves. Begin right at the bottom. Do not wait for anybody. The creative, living activity of the masses—that is the principle for the new. That is the principal factor of the new society. The workers must begin to organise workers' control of their factories revitalize the farms with industrial products and exchange them for wheat. Every object, every pound of bread should be counted, for socialism is above all else to census keeping. Socialism is not created by orders from on high. It is a stranger to mindless official bureaucratism. Living, breathing socialism is the creation of the popular masses themselves. voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.